you've given us a nice day. It's warm, but it's a nice day. But we thank you for it. We thank you for the luxuries that many of us have of air conditioning, and we can share it. Certainly, we're sharing it with our family, and you can just be together, and whether you just talk or relax, you have given us luxuries that those in years past have not had. So we just thank you for that. We thank you that we can gather, whether it's a small body, it is a body that is earnestly trying to worship the Savior, to praise and sing to the one who saved us. So Father, we are, have many things to be grateful for, and we want to we want to ask for Fred and Jenny as they're traveling that you would give them traveling mercies, that you would guard and watch them as they go from mile to mile and state to state, that you would keep them in your care and preserve them, that they would have a restful and relaxing time. We pray, too, for money as she uh, seems, <coughs> seems to be doing as well as can be expected. But Father, we are grateful for medicine, for oxygen, for nurses, for the care that she's getting. So, Father, we ask that you'd continue to be with her, that you would give her a peace that passes all understanding, that you'd guard her heart and her mind, that she would be in love with the Savior now as she has for all these decades in the past. <clears throat> so, Father, we are grateful for the life and the ministry that she has had in this church for so many years. And, Father, we want to pray for John Forbes and, his, and Kathy and for John's brother, Glenn, and the health that they're going through, and with Mike and Pauline, the health concerns that they have, and it goes from week to week, and many of us, we just have busy weeks, and we go about our business, and we go shopping, and we go here and there, and every week, they're dealing with health concerns in the family. So, Father, we ask that you would guard their hearts and minds as well, that you'd give them joy in the journey, that they would have a peace, that the Savior is with them, and that, you are, that they are in the palm of your hand, protected, cared for, and loved. So, Father, as we Give a, a short message out of, we, out of your word. We ask that your Holy Spirit would go forth with power, that it would be effective, that it would be useful for the hearer. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you turn in your Bibles, <clears throat> we're going to be looking at First Timothy, Second Timothy. Second Timothy, and I'll tell you why. We are um, in the tail end of the message with Paul. And we did his missionary journeys, and we did all of this stuff. And we left off in Acts. We left off in Acts, the last verse. This is about Paul. It says, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. That's the last that we have in Acts. The Acts is known for the beginning of the church. So Paul was instrumental in that. He's in prison. He's under house arrest. So the message today, the title is Famous Last Words. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of interested in people's last words. It could be a criminal, it could be a family, it could be a friend, acquaintance, and I have been around people, and I suspect you have as well, that they're on their deathbed and they say things towards the end of their life, and I always look at that and I go, that is what is really important. I remember what my dad said. He, was, he had cancer and he elected not to take chemo and so they gave him drugs that made him feel really good. I mean, he felt really good and he would, in fact, a little sideline here, there was my, um, a truck driver in, in our family and, and he was talking with dad and dad says, tell me, he says, uh, where do you drive? He goes, well, I go to Yakima. He goes, every day? He goes, yeah. He says, you take one trip? He goes, 
Yeah, he says, one trip. He says, you take this little pill, you can make two. <laughs> no, Dad, we're not doing that. We're not doing so it made him feel really good, but 12 to 14 days before he died, it was like going off a cliff. And he got, he got sick, and he declined really rapidly. And he was in a hospital bed, and we had conversations. And as you can imagine, for family, they'll stick in your head. You remember those. You remember what he's saying, and you kind of visit them as the years go by, and I'll bet you have too. You've been with people, variety of situations, I don't care if it's in the hospital or with hospice or whatever, and the things they say stick, because that's usually what is really important to them. In this particular case, it's famous last words, 2 Timothy is written right before Paul dies. These are his last words. These are really important. This what was weighing on his heart, and he's talking about these things, and we should view it in that way, that this is really important. You take all the decades that Paul ministered, and now he's at the end, and he knows he's at the end, and these are the words that he wanted to say. Now take a little, a little segue, that means a little side, side uh, trip. Here's some uh, famous last words that were said by some people. Uh, there's a guy by the name of James French. He was a convicted murderer and he was going to be electrocuted. And right before they electrocuted him, he says, how about this for a headline for tomorrow's paper? French fries. It's a little trivial, right? So it gives you insight. You're going, that's his last words? Really? Really. You have Sir Winston Churchill. His final words were, I'm bored with it all. That's what he said. You can take uh, another guy that we all know, Elvis Presley. He said something very similar. He says, I hope I haven't bored you. That's what he said. The rest of them are convicted murderers. There's a Grover Redding. He says, I have something to say, but not at this time. Well, he was going to be executed. So that time never did arrive. Jeffrey Matthews, he says, I think the governor's phone is broke. He hasn't called because he didn't get a reprieve. No, he didn't. You have Jimmy Glass. He goes, I'd rather be fishing. And finally, there was a guy by the name of George Apple. He says, well, gentlemen, you are about to see a baked apple. You kind of wonder. So it, tell, it doesn't tell, I use the expression, it doesn't tell you everything, but it tells you something about these final last words. It tells you something about the person uttering them. They may be cavalier, and there's a host of other ones that I could have read, but some were appropriate and some weren't appropriate. But you get the idea. What had happened is, in Acts, Paul is in house arrest. He's not free to come and go. He's chained to somebody, but it's relatively good conditions. He goes on trial before Nero, and everything I'm about to tell you here for the next minute or so is what's called by tradition. You go, what's tradition? It's not scripture. It's put together by secular writers, a little bit from this one, a little bit from this one, a little bit from they try to piece together what happened to Paul once the gavel came down 
and Nero said, you're innocent and you're released. So he was in prison in Rome for two years, house arrest, relatively good conditions, chained to a Roman guard. By and by, he has a hearing with Nero. Nero hits the gavel and says, you're innocent, you're released. Now we have tradition that comes in. It is believed that Paul went from Rome to Spain sometime during there, and Romans 15 tells us that, that he really had a desire to go to Spain. He saw a variety of churches that he'd been to in the past. He lived for another five to six years, and there's dispute on that. But he lived for, let's say, four to six years. He lived and he went to different places, saw different people, Timothy, uh, not Titus, he saw Timothy, um, anyway, there was others. I think it was about four that he saw. Yeah, Titus, Philemon, Onesimus, he saw these guys. But what happened was eventually people made accusations against him and some believe that he was in Troas, which was his hometown. Others say, no, 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 it wasn't Troas, doesn't matter. The point is, he was rearrested, taken back to Rome, and this time he wasn't put under house arrest. This time he was thrown into what is called the Mamertine Prison. And the Mamertine Prison is not a nice place. It is a nasty, nasty place. And what is interesting is Sal and I, we went to Rome in Italy, obviously. We went to the Vatican, and right in that area is a Mamertine prison, and it is not very scenic, and it's not on their top 20 tourist stops. But I would have liked to have stopped there. I just wasn't even aware of it. It was a place where you would take a prisoner in, and there was a hole in the floor, and you'd dump the person in the hole, and they would fall to the floor below, and that was their dungeon. And it was dark, it was damp, and it was cold, and there were rats and nasty stuff down there, and they would stay there, and virtually, not always, but virtually the only way out was you were going to go through the sewer system and out. You weren't coming back out. Not a nice place. That's where it is believed, tradition, says that Paul was rearrested, taken to Rome, thrown into the Mamertine prison, and while he is there, it would be very much like... <clears throat> If one of us were arrested for treason, sedition. Sedition means speaking, uh, inciting words of violence against the government. Is I'm up here and I say, we need to fight back and we need to shoot those and we need to, okay, that's sedition. Those are fighting words against an established government. Paul was accused of that. The long and short of it is everyone except about four deserted him. It'd be very much like I am arrested for treason. I'm thrown into prison, and if any of you associate with me in any way, your reputation is going to tank. They're going to go, can you believe this family went and saw Pastor Ken? Can you believe that family went and saw Pastor Ken? They must be like him. They must believe the same thing. They must believe in treason against the United States as well. So, Everybody backed away from Paul, and it was not fashionable to be a Christian at all because they didn't want to be thrown in prison and they didn't want to have their reputation severely tarnished. In those days, you did not have such a thing as objective reporting, journalism, or newspapers. 
Oh, wait, do we have that today? No, it's not like that. It's a little different. They didn't have it. What, what happened is you'd have gossip, and gossip would carry the day. So if the gossip was that this, these Christians were a, uh, a secular group that was calling for uh, cannibalism, sexual orgies, they had a hatred of the human race, well, it must be true. That must be true, because the gossip would sweep up the populace and they would believe whatever was the loudest voice. The government, of the, the Roman government, had the idea that, the, that Christianity was a secret society that drank human blood and it was trying to overthrow the government. Well, none of the Christian, so-called Christians wanted to be associated with that, so they backed way off. When you look, and I'm going to be referring from time to time to 2 Timothy. That's where I'm going to be doing the vast majority of my reference. But if you look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 16, it says, At my first defense, no one took my part. All deserted me. May it not be charged to them. In fact, there's another one in, in chapter 1, verse 15. It says, You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Now think about this. If you had a position that you thought was righteous and God-honoring and you took it and nobody in the church called you, nobody came to see you, nobody wants to talk to you, we can, we can pass that off real easy. you got to be a really strong individual because your friends, your acquaintances, the people that you thought were going to support you, they're nowhere to be found. You are alone, all alone, save for people that came sporadically to see you. <clears throat> In verse uh, 9 through 13 of chapter 4, Timothy, Paul says, Do your best to come to me soon. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Remember, famous last words. These are his last words. And it says, bring the cloak. Well, I can tell you why he wanted the cloak, because the Mamertine prison was cold, and it was damp. And for, for a guy of, of that era, he was old. He was 61 to 65 years old, somewhere in there. And the beatings and the things that he'd went through had... I would say, taken their toll. So it wasn't that he was so cold, it's that he couldn't dry out. It was just moisture, and he was always wet, and he was always cold, so he asked for the cloak. <clears throat> anyway, we go on. 2 Timothy 1, verse 13. It says, when you heard from me, Keep as a pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to start digging into selected verses that Paul shared with Timothy. He says, Timothy, this is what I want you to obey and to heed for the rest of your ministry life. These are the... the, the the highlighted points. This is what I want you to do for the rest of your ministry. And the first one is, as you can see in your outline, we need to guard the truth. And it says that 
in uh, verse 14, says, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in you. So, verse 12, as you, if, you, if you look there, and I skipped that, but verse 12 should be real familiar to you because it's a real familiar song. It says, uh, because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded or am convinced that he is able to guard that what I was entrusted to him for that day. That, that's a really popular song and kind of gets it in our brain. You get theology and doctrine in your brain when you see scripture passages like this. But what does it mean to guard the deposit entrusted to you? Well, it means having a relationship with Jesus Christ and it is knowing that he is the one who guards your life. Put it this way. If you were to have somebody who's not a believer, or even somebody who's a nominal believer, can they be strengthened in their faith if they talk to you? If they rub shoulders with you, are they going to be strengthened and encouraged and pointed towards Scripture, and that they go, you know what? If you ever talk to him, or if you ever talk to her, they really guard the truth of the Scripture. That's what it means is guard the deposit that was given to you, meaning you're very careful with it. You know what the scriptures say, and if somebody rubs shoulders with you, they go, boy, they got a good handle on this. That is I mean, they're careful with it, and they're not just going to trivialize it and say, well, and you've, I've heard it, you've heard it as well. It says, well, well, you know, nobody can really know what scripture means in that passage. I get a little nervous on that. Certainly there are confusing passages, but you interpret scripture with scripture. It never can uh, contradict one another. You can't say it's this way over here and it's this way over here. It has to be in unison. That's another sermon for another day. If you think that you can stand against the forces today and not have a solid foundational relationship with Jesus Christ, you're going to find that one day life is going to get really tough. And if you've got a friend or a family or you've got a counselor or somebody who you think is going to support you, if Jesus Christ isn't firmly and evidently woven in that fabric, you will fall. It's just a matter of time. You can kind of fake it. I can fake it on and on, but eventually I call it the rubber meets the road. And you're going to have to say, is, are you guarding the deposit given to you? Is Jesus Christ your crown, your jewel, something that you treasure? He should be. It goes on in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 14, and in chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says to pass this good deposit to others who, who will be able to teach it to others. This addresses Christians everywhere to communicate truth. Now, it would be fair enough to say to you guys, and you're sitting here and you're going, well, hey, that verse is talking about pastors. It's talking about teachers, like Sunday school teachers, because, I mean, you say, hey, that excludes me. I'm not a teacher. I'm not a pastor. I'm not in any kind of teaching capacity at all. That is true. However, this verse refers to a host of things like teaching of children, grandchildren, neighbors, friends. It's the whole idea if somebody rubs shoulders with you, 
Are you guarding the deposit that was given to you? Are you quick to point people to the Savior? That is a teaching capacity. However, however, we all know you can't just blow smoke and say there isn't such a thing as pastors, and there are teachers, and in Bible study, there's Bible study leaders and things like this. There is. And what should be used as a criteria for finding good people to do that? Well, the first one is they need to have a searching mind, ready to learn both in secular and sacred ways. They want to learn. They want to know what the scripture has to say. And there's some of you that do a great job of that. A great job. You want to know what scripture says. It's called dig digging deeper. It's, in, in fact, I'll probably I'll just use it now. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15 is a terrific verse. It's studied to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Maybe a different version than the NIV. But that is, that is a verse that I glommed onto, I stuck to for decades. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I always thought, you know, is it reasonable? That's a courtroom phrase. Is it reasonable that somebody come up to me or somebody come up to Sally or somebody come up to you and they have a biblical question, is it reasonable that most of the time you'd have an answer. And if you don't have an answer, you'll get an answer. I can remember again with my dad years and years ago, and I, I took great joy in presenting really hard questions to him because I wanted to know what he thought. And in one of those questions, I think he was a bit exasperated. That wasn't unusual. But he was a bit exasperated. He goes, you need to go talk to the pastor. And I said, I want to talk to the pastor. He goes, well, you need to talk to the pastor. I said, I'm not talking to the pastor. I'm talking to you because you should know. He's like, you dumb kid. <laughs> that was his phrase of affection. <laughs> Maybe I picked up a little bit of it. You dumb kid. Because I really believe that even as a kid, I go, no, 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 no. I'm not going to the guy who I would say has the canned answer. Okay, they went to seminary, and they did all the hoo-ha and the hoops and stuff like this, and they're expected to know. In fact, they're paid to know. I want to go to that person who's been on the elder board, who's been on the ruling board, who's, who's loved Jesus all their life, who's read the Bible all their life. I go, what do you think on that? Well, you should go see the pastor. I want to see the pastor. I want to see faithful men like you and faithful women like you. I want to see what you have to say about this particular concept, and we should know. And if we don't know, we should have a burning desire to know. That's, that's where I come from. Talk a little bit more about that here in a little bit. First of all, I said they have to have a searching mind, ready to learn. Secondly, they have to have a humble heart and know the truth is bigger than they are. They have to have a humble heart. And if I know scripture better than you, big deal. It shouldn't puff me up and say, oh, hey, I know, I know. Okay, so you know. So what? You could know just as well. And we are all encouraged together to know Scripture as best as we can because we want to guard the deposit that is given to us. We want to guard that. We want to be accurate. So in order to find these faithful men or these reliable people to teach the Word, they have to have a searching mind. They have to have a humble heart. They have to have an evident gift. An evident gift. And let's just be 
a little transparent here. Some, listening to some people is like watching paint dry. They don't have a gift, okay? They may have a gift of something else, but it's just, it's just bad. But when you have somebody, and there's a whole range of who those somebodies are, when somebody has an evident gift, you go, yeah, that person I can listen to. That person conveys it in such a way that I can understand it, and, and it's made scripture clear. Okay, that is one of the aspects of faithful men or reliable teacher. And the final one is have a faithful spirit. You don't quit when the going gets tough. If you happen to have, and I'm not bragging at all, I'm not. It's just I was a Sunday school teacher way back when we were at church in Bellingham, and I was still on the patrol, and I would get home on graveyard some, always at 6 o'clock in the morning, maybe at 7 or 8, and I would have a Sunday school class at, I don't know, what was it, 10 o'clock, something like that, and it was horrible. I mean, you could feel your fingers just tingling because you've been up all night. And Anyway, it doesn't matter. If you're going to be a teacher, be a faithful teacher. You signed up to do what I call do the drill, then do the drill. You say, well, yeah, it's really hard. Well, oh, well, tough. There was a guy that I became aware of here in the last couple of weeks who was working for a local company. He was a mid-20s guy. And he called management. Let's say he called management this morning. And he says, you know, the alarm didn't go off. He had a history showing up late. The alarm didn't go off, and I'm sorry, I'm going I'm to be late. I'll get there as soon as I can. And his boss goes, okay, okay, get here as soon as you can. And he says, while I have you on the phone... He says, I got home late last night, and it really interfered with me hanging out with my buddies. What? Say what? He goes, yeah, it, it really interfered. Well, by the end of that conversation, that company didn't interfere with his life anymore. He could hang, well, hang out with his buddies all he wanted to do, so it's just, you're done. You're out. Faithful men. You want to have people who are going to be there. They're going to do the work. They're going to do the drill. They're going to be faithful. They're not going to just say, well, you know, that interfered with this, or it interfered with my baseball, or it interfered with my TV, or my hanging out with my buddies. No, it's a priority to guard the good deposit that was given to you. Paul goes on with Timothy, and I'm going to start reading at chapter 2. He says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men. We just talked about that. Who will also, also be qualified to teach others? And then he makes three metaphors of what it, what it means to be reliable teachers, reliable people to teach, whether it be kids, friends, neighbors, fellow believers, whatever that looks like. He gives three metaphors. And the first one is, is to share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You're to be a good soldier, and that is in verse 3. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. And that's the truth. I was not in the military. Many of you were. And it's and I will freely say it's apples and oranges. I'm going to freely say that the military discipline was far more difficult than what I went through at the State Patrol Academy. Far more difficult. I freely will say that. But it's the only reference point I have. And when you were at the State Patrol Academy, I use the expression, you were fully present. Every day. You were fully present. And if you weren't fully present, stand by. They will... They will 
find out who you are, and they will make sure you're fully present. And I think the military is like that on steroids, is you're going to be fully present, you're going to do what your commanding officer says, you are going to be single-minded, you are going to do whatever you have to do to please your commanding officer. You're not going to waver one bit. That's what Paul is saying to Timothy, is when you're teaching, don't waver a bit, is you need to be just like a good soldier. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read here what someone else wrote, and honestly, I don't know who it was, about ministry and the adventures of ministry, and this gives you a glimpse into the variety of things that you get exposed to. And when I read this a couple times, I probably have been exposed to 98% of this. So you think, whoa, 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 this goes beyond the scope. No, no, this is ministry. It says, a good sampling involving the adventures as ministry is exposure to all forms of anger, long-standing resentment, and unforgiveness, extending all the way to rebell rebellion and violence. I've seen those. Sexual offenses include rape, incest, homosexuality, fornication, and the ever-present adultery. Marital problems involved attempted or contemplated suicide, abortions, and adoptions. I see family problems between parents, single parents, and children. There are addictions of every sort, alcoholics, drugaholics, foodaholics, workaholics, sexaholics, and spendaholics. This doesn't include either coming from or going to a prison, a hospital or a detox unit. Then there are, there are the quieter problems of legal, finances, and career. Questions about specific passages of scripture or those who simply want to know about Linden Community Church are asked as well. This is a slice of real life. That is a slice of real life not exposed to nearly everyone in the church, nor should it be. But when it says that you must please your master like a good soldier, and you are committed, and you are single-minded, if you're going to do that, this is some of the things you're going to have exposure to. And I go, don't come to me for that. I don't know what to do. That's where you become a teacher. And what does Scripture say? And you point people to Scripture because scripture can point the way on how to improve your life, not for wealth, not because you can impress anybody, because it makes your soul and your life whole by following the Savior. So a soldier is single-minded. He has one objective, and his aim is to satisfy the one who enlisted him. We are not, as Christians, to have a dual or twofold objective. There's nothing wrong with being rich and famous, having pleasurable experiences. There's nothing wrong with it. But our goal should be to please our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, not I want to be a Christian and I want to be rich and famous. That is a double-minded person. We are not to say I want to be, uh, I want to be a good Christian. That means I don't have to use my talents. Because, hey, I want to be single-minded. No, you use your talents. That's good. Paul was a tent maker. He knew how to make a living. You use the talents that God has given you, but you use those talents to enhance the glory of God. 
We are always seeking to please him. Finally, the second point is verse 5. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. An athlete, if he wants to win, denies himself. Pretty habitually. He denies himself. He denies himself, my very favorite, strawberry shortcake. They will. They will not gorge down a strawberry shortcake. Uh, by the way, Sal likes to keep the Olympics on. they got the Olympic trials, and you see these men and women are so fit, and they're so in shape. Uh, they don't eat wrong, whatever wrong is. Their nutrition is right on. They don't have chocolate sundaes and late-night parties, wild living and reveling. They don't have carousing around and drunkenness because you are not going to compete if you do those things, especially at that high of a level. A Christian must act like an athlete and say no to some things because it is for our good. Because if we say yes to some of these things, it will tempt us to give in. It will distract us from the goal. There's a guy, as kind of a little sideline, there's a guy at Angar I mean, it's amazing. Since I've been there, well, since he's been there, it's probably been there around a year, maybe a year and a half. It was probably two months ago he ran a 100-mile race. And it wasn't really a race. It was more like, can I finish this? Uh, he ran that, and here two weeks ago he just ran another 100-mile journey or whatever. I'm going, in my world, and I, this isn't gossip because I told him, you're nuts. <laughs> I go, can you imagine? You're, you're going to start out, here's the starting line, and you're going to go for 100 miles. It's going to be anywhere from 20 to 22 hours straight. He is committed, folks, and that is what Scripture likens a faithful follower is like a soldier, single-minded, like an athlete, single-minded. They are looking for the goal. They are looking for the prize, and that's what they do. Finally, the third one is, the emphasis is upon a hard-working farmer. Verse 6, the hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Yeah, and the emphasis is on hard-working. And since we're living in a farming community, that probably makes a whole lot of sense to us. Is a, a farmer is hard-working. They do the work. They do what needs to be done on time because they have to. Otherwise, the crops aren't going to be getting in. Yet the attitude of some believers are, if it's hard, count me out. I don't, I don't want to do it. If it's, if it's hard, well, that's not for me. I want to have an easy road. I'm going to give an example of more of an application of this. Uh, in my years of ministry, I've taught three different classes of around 25 each of uh, in their men that went in there, and it, we called it Thousand Day Journey, and it did, it did uh, Bible survey and Bible doctrines. Just, we'll just shorten it, but basically it was always true. And out, of, and out of probably, and it wasn't 25 each year, but I probably had 60 to 65 men that went through this over the course of three classes. And I was absolutely stunned, and this, this intersects, it segues, segues with being a soldier, an athlete, and a hardworking farmer. I was stunned when I went in there because one of the requirements for each of the two years was you read through the Bible cover to cover. First year, you read through the Bible cover to cover, and it was a chronological Bible. And the second year, you read through the Bible cover to cover, only it wasn't, chronolo it wasn't chronological. It was chronological. So the first one was just the Bible. The second one was chronological. 
I'll bet you out of 65 men, 50 of them had never read the Bible cover to cover. Probably at least 45. At least, and I was just like, really? And none of those that had not read through the Bible, they didn't have a uniform and, an, and a very easy to explain picture of the gospel from Genesis all the way to Revelation because it is a picture of the gospel. And if you take out a little slice here and take a little slice here and take a little slice here, those slices in and of themselves may be okay, but when you try to put the whole gospel message together, you go, yeah, I really don't know. Well, I can believe that because you've never read it from cover to cover. So I would say to you, if you want to be a single-minded soldier and an athlete and a hard-working farmer, there is one place you can start. Read the Bible cover to cover. Just read it. What does it say? And I know, I know what's going to happen. You've got Genesis, which is the beginning. Exodus is departure. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is the law. Uh, numbers is the numbers of Israel. Deuteronomy is the second law. So Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is where everybody gets bogged down and they stop. Just, just do it. Just do the work. Do what it takes to go through it and know what the Bible says from cover to cover. It's the gospel story. So now I want to kind of wind this up, not real slow, but kind of wind this up on five encouragements. And we're going to be looking at verse 7, I believe it is. Verse 7 it says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Meaning, what does the scripture say? How does it fit? How is it important? Understand the Bible gives us different perspectives of life. What does it have to say? How does it apply to us here? That is what Paul is saying to Timothy. And then, as I said earlier in my message, just a little ways down in chapter 2, it says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. That is what we should know as believers. Secondly, verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel. It says, it is as if Jesus Christ is standing on the other side of the grave and he's saying, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because verse 8 says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Jesus Christ has been in your position. He knows what you're going through. He's experienced what you have experienced. He knows the pain that it takes. He knows what you're going through. And he is standing on the other side of the grave, and he said, remember the gospel. Preach Jesus Christ and him resurrected. And it goes out. It goes on. It says, there's nothing like knowing Jesus Christ, the living Lord. What I have found in my, in my role, you might say, as a biblical counselor, and maybe you've had this as well, whether you're a parent or a friend or... And people would come in and they got a problem. And you point them to scripture and you say, scripture says this, and I would suggest that you do this. And they don't. They don't. That is not remembering Jesus Christ and him risen from the dead. It's doing what I want to do. And we've all probably had that in one capacity or another, is people just, they want to do what they want to do. But when you point, remember this, folks, when you point people to scripture, it gives them hope. And if a body, if a soul, if a heart does not have hope, 
It's crushing. In biblical counseling, that is the number one thing that you do is you give people hope. And the Bible gives people hope. And it starts with Jesus Christ as the risen Savior. It goes on. Verse 10. Therefore, or rather, verse 9, the gospel for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And we all know that. We may stumble and fall. We may have problems. We may think that the gospel's not going where we want it to go. Guess what? Jesus Christ is in charge, and that gospel will go anywhere he chooses, whether there is people resisting this or not. In verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is, this is a bit of a difficult passage to, to get your arms around. Some suffer in order that others might be saved. And I don't understand that fully, but it says here, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect. And let me give you an example on that. Those, those Bibles that you have in your hands, those Bibles that are in the pew rack, do you know how many people bled and died that we have that Bible in the pew rack right now? Because it used to be in Latin. It used to be only the priest could read it. And they were the ones that read it, and you didn't have the scriptures because you weren't qualified. Well, somewhere along the line, the English Bible, the King James Bible, was formulated, and there was a lot of people that died because of that. And they suffered so that we might have benefit from this. There's another one. In a minute, I'm going to read you an exchange that happened with a couple bishops who rejected the meaning of the Eucharist. And don't feel bad, I had to look it up too. The Eucharist is like our communion. Only the Eucharist, in the view of the Catholic Church, is the Catholic Church believed that the bread and the juice was actually the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Actually, the real, the real blood and body of Jesus Christ. And as, you might say, the Reformation got closer and closer, there were people, including these bishops, who said, nope, don't believe that, don't agree with that, and they were burned at the stake. They were burned. So that we can have communion right up here, and we talk about the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, and these are symbols of what, and we all go, well, yeah, yeah. You know what? There's a lot of people that suffered and died so that we can do communion right here the way that we do. And you can give a whole host of other examples of what that looks like. Grace is free, but grace is not cheap. Remember that. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. Men and women have died in chains. They have been tortured and torn asunder that we might have the Bible as we see it today. There are people all over the world that have suffered for the word of truth, and by God's grace, we have not. There is a say, saying that goes, if you succeed without suffering, it is because someone else has suffered in order that you might succeed. If you suffer without succeeding, it is in order that someone behind you might succeed without suffering. And I don't, like I said, I don't understand that in its entirety, but we... we if we suffer, it's to benefit someone ahead of us. And there are people behind us who have suffered so that we might benefit. And finally, verses 11 through 13. This is a trustworthy saying. 
For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And what these verses mean is they're really a test of our faith. That's what the whole, the whole summary is, is. It's a test of our faith, and I'm just going to take it really briefly. If we died with him, we will also live with him. That's right. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and we will as well if we are his children. If we endure, we will also reign with him. He says, endure like, a, like an athlete, like a soldier, like a hardworking farmer. He says, if we disown him, he will also disown us. If you shake your fist either like this, or you just have your hand in your pocket and you go, mm -mm. I'm not going to do that. Your heart attitude is, I reject the free gift of Jesus Christ. That's what he meant here is, if you disown him, he will also disown us. So whether you shake your hand at his face, or you just have your hands in your pocket and your heart attitude is, mm -mm. it's not for me. He will disown you, just like you have disowned him. But the final one, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. That is a picture of Peter. Peter was faithful, but he stumbled. He fell. He denied his Savior, but he loved his Lord and was restored. And it says there, for he cannot disown himself. That means somebody that was just weak and in a moment, he did something that he regretted. I mentioned to you a little bit earlier about the Anglican bishops. There was two of them, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. They were in Oxford. Sal and I were at the very place. There's a monument right there, exactly where this happened. And they were both burned at the stake for denying the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And it happened on October 16, 1555. And the last words of Latimer to Ridley is he said, play the man, Master Ridley. In our words, we'd say, be brave, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. The title of my message, Famous Last Words. That's his last words is that a candle would be lit in England that would never be put out. And to this day, people are referring to the act that they did. They sacrificed it all as a good soldier, as an athlete, as a hardworking farmer. They guarded the trust that was given to them. They rightly divided the word of truth. And they said, you know what? We are not lining up with this. And if you choose to kill us, we are not going to change because we know what Scripture says and we're not going to deviate from it. That is what our Savior asks us to do. I doubt if any of us are going to be burned at the stake. But do you cling to the gospel? Do you cling to what Scripture says and you're discerning and you have discernment? That's what the passage is talking about. And Paul, I'll leave you with this. These are words of Paul, and he's going to die shortly. And this is what's on his heart. And we should take it with that amount of gravity is he's telling Timothy, Timothy, use these words in your ministry all the days of your life. This is what's really important. Ministry team, come on up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.